Well, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? All right. Thank you all for being here. Um, let's go ahead and begin with a prayer, okay? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks today for the gift of life, and the gift of salvation, and for the gift of the Mass. We ask for your blessings upon all of us, and may open our ears and our minds to receive your word into our hearts. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. Um, Raise your hand if you were here like a year and a half ago when I started giving this talk. Okay, great. Some new people. Uh, And I remember, so I gave two. It was in March of 2020. And uh, I remember thinking, gosh, uh, when COVID hit, I was kind of glad because I thought I would have burned out uh, being here so early. So I was going over the material I had from back then, and what I've done is actually updated it some. So this is not the exact same thing we saw last year for the first and second session. So I was thinking, how am I going to start this tonight? Um, Well, in the grand scheme of the church, a pretty important document came out in July. Um, It was called Traditioni, or um, excuse me, uh, Traditionis Custodis which means custodians of tradition. Pope Francis came out with this in July. Um, Now, what this was, is anyone familiar with the extraordinary form and the ordinary form? Have you ever heard those terms before when it comes to Mass? So, yeah, so in in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI, two years into his pontificate, came out with a motu proprio that's kind of like on the Pope's initiative called Samorum Pontificum. And what that did was relax the rules on restrictions for saying the Mass, the old Mass, right? What people kind of call the Latin Mass. Um, And so Pope Francis, what he did in this document was kind of actually restrict it a little bit more. And, you know, for us at St. Thomas More, I've never done an extraordinary form Mass here. So you might be wondering how this concerns us. Now, what Pope Francis said, in the accompanying letter that restricted the use of the old Latin Mass, he said, In common with Pope Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that in many places the prescriptions of the new Missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions." And then a little bit later in that letter, he says, I ask you, talking to all the bishops, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II, without the eccentricities that could easily degenerate into abuses. Seminarians and new priests should be formed in the faithful observance of the prescriptions of the Missal and liturgical books in which is reflected the liturgical reform willed by Vatican Council II. So how that impacts us, based on that letter, is he's calling on all bishops and all priests to follow the prescriptions of what the church says. So you might go to masses, and you're like, Father here does it that way. Father here does it this way. What's the difference? We're going to learn about some of those differences, some that are legitimate, that are options each priest has. Some are actually what we call liturgical abuses, things priests should not do during Mass. Now, I'd say, right, uh, sometimes we mess up, 
You know? So Father Clark, why, what, after one Mass, Deacon Danny comes up to me right outside and goes, Father Clark, were we not supposed to say the creed this Mass? <laughs> no, I just blanked and forgot to say the creed. We, I'm recording this, so we might edit that out. Uh, <laughs> So what this is going to be is like, we're going to look into what the church actually says, and we're going to compare it. At the end of this, I'm only going to talk for about 45 minutes. And then at the end, I'll open up to about 15 minutes, and then we'll continue next week where we left off. My hope is to go through the Mass, um, and I'll be able to tweak it each week as we go. So in order to start this, let's talk about the Second Vatican Council. Second Vatican Council took place between 1962 and 1965. Pope John XXIII, who's now been canonized a saint, summoned all the bishops around the world to come to the Vatican and what he called would be an aggiornamento, which is Italian for an update, an update to the church, present the church kind of to the modern world. Now, the first document, the first document promulgated by the Second Vatican Council was in 1963, called Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the constant, sacred constitution of the liturgy. It kind of was the call for the changes that would take place, the reform that would take place. So thinking about it, from this, what are some changes you think happened after the Second Vatican Council and the liturgy, or what did it actually call for, you think? Does anyone know? Does anyone remember what it used to be and to what it became? The language? The language, yeah. What specifically about the language? From Latin to the vernacular, yeah. So what it actually did was relax. It opened up the use for the vernacular. But interestingly enough, Sacrosanctum Concilium says, but the people should all know their responses proper to them in Latin. Um, one of the things that the Second Vatican Council wanted was not just kind of the priest up there saying the prayers. It called for an active participation, a fully conscious, active participation. What do you think that means? Now, active participation, not so much. Okay, this is the responses. You're right. Well, how it was interpreted, though, when they heard active participation was everyone needs to be doing something. We all need everyone having their own roles in the liturgy, doing all this stuff. What they say when they look back at the council and they look at the Latin, because that's the original language it's in, you have two different Latin words. You have activa versus actuoso. Now, activa means active. Everyone needs to be actively doing something, exercising some role. Actuosa is the word that was used in Sacrosanctum Concilium. And Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, he said what that means is not just doing stuff. It means engaging your whole self, mind and body in the liturgy. So he said you could even be actively participating by consciously listening, right? So one of the things the council called for was this uh, more use of Scripture. Or when we read the Scripture, Liturgy of the Word, it was just the Gospel of Matthew. Then it opened up to all the Gospels. And we're on a three-year cycle on Sunday. So it gave us more Scripture to hear. Active participation could be you in the pews listening and concentrating on what's actually being said. So that was what was meant by active participation. Um, what's something else you think uh, that's kind of changed that you've noticed in the liturgy from what it might have been way back then to what it is today? 
Say it again. Communion. Communion? How so? Right, so communion's changed a little bit. It's kind of interesting. Sacrosanctum Concilium never called for any real changes in communion. And, you know, I double-checked this, but the relaxation of receiving in the hand, even though it's done around the world, was, I think, a U.S. thing. But you can go to St. Peter's Basilica, and people receive in the hand there, too. So uh, communion, it, Sacrosanctum Concilium didn't really call for that. One of the things it did call for uh, was a concelebration, right, where you'd have more priests. So sometimes you might see Father Took up there and me, and like on our parish festival, there are several priests up there. So Vatican II kind of liberalized that a little bit too. Um, so what we're going to do is going through kind of the Mass and what the Vatican's, Second Vatican Council documents kind of say. And I'm going to do it more in an observational way. I'm not going to just read you documents. Um, now it's important to remember that we've inherited something, right? The liturgy has come before us. And so we go back to the roots, just how it started, right? It started, now this is coming from the catechism. One of the big theories is Jesus had the Last Supper, right? Where he had this uh, meal with his disciples in anticipation of his sacrifice on the cross. And so he said, do this in memory of me, right? The priest says it at every Mass. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in memory of me. So they were doing that. But the early Jews were also still going, this is an ancient synagogue, a ruin that you can see today. So they were still going to the synagogue to hear the word. And so what happened was the two came together in the celebration. And already by 155 AD, this is St. Justin Martyr, um, one of the first, they say the first philosopher, great big philosopher to convert to Christianity. And in 155, he wrote a document actually giving an early description of what the Mass was. And just listen to this and see if you can hear this and think what we do at Mass, and you'll see a lot of similarities. He says, On the day we call the day of the sun, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. When the reader is finished... He who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. He takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the, through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks in Greek, which is Eucharistian, that we have been judged worthy of these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. When he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine, and water, and take them to those who are absent. 155 AD. Does that kind of sound somewhat similar to what we do? Now, of course, over those 1,900 years or so since then, obviously there's been development, right? There's been a development of the liturgy, and so we've inherited something, 
What I like to say, the church is the custodian of the liturgy. Uh, It's not mine to change. It's not yours to change. We have a right, R-I-G-H-T, to the right, R-I-T-E. So, before Mass begins, now we're just going to go straight into it. Now, this is our church right here. It's a little dark, but we had a photographer out here the other day to take some pictures of the church with people in there. Um, Before COVID, remember, our floor uh, had been destroyed. So that's one of the changes we've had in the church since then. (laughs) So, okay, this is kind of interesting. Before Mass begins, now this is from the general instruction of the Roman Missal. So the Roman Missal is this great big book right here. this big book. I always, what I do when I go around the classrooms at school, and I carry a fat wad of cash with me to bribe the kids to actually respond when I ask them questions. And one of the things I do, I say, this is a $10 question. How many pages are in this book? Oh my gosh, their hands raise up in the air. Uh, now it all varies. This one is 1,502 pages. Uh, the one, this is a little bit different than the one we use in there, but this is the missile. Now the missile has things in here called rubrics, which are red, think ruby. The rubrics tell us what to do, and the words are in black. And that's what we're supposed to say. So as priests, they always say, do the red and say the black. Um, Now, at the beginning of this big book is what's called the general instruction of the Roman Missal. All these things that are rules to follow and break down everything already going in the rubrics. Now, one of the things it says, I believe it's number 45. Don't hold me to this, but it's in there. You can find it somewhere. It says, even before the celebration itself, it is commendable that silence is to be observed in the church, in the sacristy, in the vesting room, and in adjacent areas, so that all may dispose themselves to carry out the sacred action in a devout and fitting manner. So it calls for silence, right? Now, one time, uh, so my parents come to Mass here from time to time, a lot, I guess, really. I don't know, it's kind of weird seeing them in the pews. I think I've gotten used to it. Uh, but I saw my mom. Now, I would never do this to any of you, maybe a couple of y'all. <laughs> I saw my mom standing up talking to someone behind her before Mass began. And I'm wearing my alb and just the stole. I haven't put the chasuble on yet. And I go up to her beeline and say, you need to be quiet. You're my mom. If, I, if anyone's going to be an example, it's got to be you. Uh, so again, uh, I was able to do it to her. I wouldn't really do it to all of you guys, you know. But yeah, silence before mass, right? One of the big things our world lacks more than anything is silence, right? You've heard me preach about it. Uh, we need silence. And so before mass, if you get there early, one thing you can do is go over the prayers if you haven't already or go over the readings if you haven't already. And then... Just sit in some silence. And one of the things we've been doing here is have a little prelude on the organ so that it muffles any voices that people might be saying or the things they might be saying. Um, Now in this too, it talks about the sacred action. Sacred. Does anyone know what sacred means? Like at a most fundamental, literal level. Don't say holy. It It means, yeah, set apart. It means set apart. So what we're doing is set apart from everything else that we normally do in the world, right? The liturgy, mass, is different, and it's supposed to be. One of the things that's kind of cool 
is you see these uh, landscaping, right, the flowers you put in. You see that in a lot of ancient churches, the flowers and the planters before. Before COVID, I actually had, we had some nice plants before. I'm not saying we need to put them back in there right now. But we had some plants in there. All this gardening and stuff is supposed to recall us Eden, right, the Garden of Eden. And we're entering the new Eden. And that's where we have these beautiful plants and flowers up in the sanctuary because it's recalling the new Eden, the heavenly Eden. Um, so sacred means set apart. And so there are all these things we're supposed to do. And the sacristy, sacristy means sacred, right? It's where the priest gets vested. Now the priest wears sacred vestments. That's me. This is me. Uh, maybe my first year as a priest, I'm a lot less, uh, uh, I have a lot more gray hair since then, I've noticed when I was looking at this. This is me right before my Mass of Thanksgiving. It's with Father Kevin Story. He was the president of St. Thomas High School, and he's since moved on. Um, but this is us kind of laugh. We're not praying. We probably should have been praying a little more in the sacristy of uh, St. Michael's Catholic Church. But here we are, these vestments, right? The vestments when the priests put on are kind of a sacred action as well. Um, So before we start, the priest is supposed to wash his hands, and he says a prayer. He says, give virtue to my hands, O Lord, that being cleansed from all stain, I might serve you with purity of mind and body. Um, One of the jokes we say is, I clean our hands. Like, these hands were made for chalices, not calluses. So uh, he already left, but that's why Father Took doesn't work, you know? (laughs) Just kidding. If he was here, I wish... I would have still said that. Um, but if you notice, since that's what we say, and then we have all these other vestments we put on. Um, this thing right here, not every priest wears it. I do, mainly because the first, uh, the first vestments I was given when I was instituted as an acolyte, um, this is what the seminary gave us. And so it's this thing right here you see over my neck, right? Some priests don't wear that, and you know, they don't have to if they're covered completely up here. But uh, that's called the Amos. So all this stuff, at the, when the liturgy was developing, they were taking clothes from the ancient Roman Greco world that were nice or had some meaning behind it, and that's what they started wearing. So the Amos was an everyday thing people wore, but especially soldiers. It would protect their head and their neck from the armor, and it would also give them protection from their sweat, right? It would absorb sweat. And so actually when the priest puts this on, the amice, he puts it on his head and then he puts it over his neck. When it's on the head, the priest says, place upon me, O Lord, the helmet of salvation that I may overcome the assaults of the devil. So even then, when I'm putting it on, it's a prayer that's reminding me of what I'm going into, right? It's kind of spiritual warfare. I mean, the Mass is the most important thing we do. And so it starts getting your mind geared up. And the next thing I put on, this white thing I'm wearing right here. Does anyone know what that's called? Alb. Yeah, an alb just means white. And so you put that on. Now, the alb, the alb it was a nice garment, an outer garment people would wear. Um, the white represents the baptismal state. And you also see most people when they enter the sanctuary, whether it be a server, uh, the deacon also wears an alb, they're wearing white because it represents your baptismal state and also represents the heavenly state when you're wearing your heavenly garments. Now, when we put that on, the priest says, Make me white, O Lord, and cleanse my heart, that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. 
The next thing the priest puts on, you can't really see it right there, but you see it, those little things that go down. You see the server's wearing it too. It's called the cincture. Cincture just means belt. And when we put that on, we say, Gird me, O Lord, with the cincture of purity, and extinguish in my heart the fire of concupiscence, so that the virtue of continence and chastity, always abiding in my heart, I may better serve thee. The next thing we put on, the stole. The stole is a sign of authority. Roman soldiers wore something similar as a crisscross belt where they'd put their sword and food and provisions in there. And it reminds the priest to preach the word of God with conviction. And we say when we put that on, Restore unto me, O Lord, the stole of immortality which I lost through the sin of my first parents. And although unworthy to approach thy sacred mystery, may I nevertheless attain to eternal joy. Then the last thing we put on is the chasuble. It comes from a word that just means house. It was a cape that they think Roman soldiers would wear that protected them from inclement weather. It came to be seen as a sign of charity that the priest covers himself in. And so the last thing we say, we put that on and we say, O Lord, who has said my yoke is easy, my burden light, grant that I may so carry it as to merit thy grace. This is the stuff we put on. This is the stuff we pray before we even go into Mass. Now, all of you are invited to make some sort of prayer, right? To have an intention. What you're offering this Mass for yourself. Um, and to collect your minds to prepare for this incredible thing. It's kind of hard, right? And I don't see too, too, too. You're, some of you are out there. But I really give all the credit in the world to these young families, right? You see them in there. Four kids. You know it was a hassle just to get them out of the house. Let alone get there on time or within the first ten minutes or so, you know? And people have asked me, and I've said this before at Mass, you know, Father Clark, what do you think when you just hear all these kids crying during Mass? And, you know, sometimes you, you definitely hear it, but in my mind, you know what I think? I thank God, right? How beautiful that is. I mean, how many young families we have here? Uh, like at 9 and 11 o'clock Masses, it's pretty amazing to see that. I mean, that just means it's life, it's future, you know? All right, so after that, right, we leave the sacristy, we begin what's called the entrance procession. Now, the Roman Missal and the general instruction of the Roman Missal, these are the things that really start telling us what we're doing. Now, the minister is in order as the entrance chant is sung. Now, the purpose of this chant is to open the celebration, foster the unity of those who have been gathered, introduce their thoughts to the mystery of liturgical season or festivity, and accompany the procession of the priests and ministers. So all that's saying, right, that's a fancy way of saying it. it just prepares us for what we're about to do, you know? Um, now, this is interesting because people have asked me this before. Because if you're at the 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock, right, what we've started to do at those two masses is a prelude hymn. It's a hymn that people sing. Then the music kind of changes, and we do something else called the entrance antiphon. Now, why do we do that? And the general instruction of the Roman Missal the books, right? The book of Vatican II and the liturgical books. This is the order that says what should be sung, be sung. Number one, the antiphon from the Roman Missal or the psalm from the Roman Gradual as set to music there or in another musical setting. That's number one. That's the number one preference of the church. The second preference, 
the seasonal antiphon or psalm of the simple gradual. So a seasonal antiphon is something that would be sung throughout the season, right? It'd be the same every week. Number three, a song from another collection of psalms and antiphons approved by the Conference of Bishops or the Diocesan Bishop, including psalms arranged in responsorial or metrical forms. That's some other psalm that people would be singing, right? So you're singing Scripture. The fourth and final preference of the church, so the last one you'd say, is a suitable liturgical song similarly approved by the Conference of Bishops or the Diocesan Bishop. So the last thing the church wants us actually to sing is a hymn. Did anyone know that? Right? It's just what, I mean, it's what I grew up with. You know, you read, you, you, you have your hymnal, and you sing the entrance hymn, and you go. That's not the preference of the church. You've got to wonder, why do we, this is my favorite thing. And you can read this in any business book, too. The number one killer of a business is when you go into a place, and you say, like, the new CEO gets in there. I'm not a CEO, by the way. <laughs> but you get in there, and you say, why do we do things this way? Well, we've always done them this way. We've got to know what we're doing. What's the vision And it's not my vision, it's the church's vision. And that's what it says right there is the antiphon. Music, by the way, is incredibly important, right? Did you know the church says out of all the art it has produced and given and contributed to civilization? Think think St. Peter's Basilica. Think Notre Dame. Think uh, Michelangelo's Pieta. You could think Michelangelo's frescoes in the Sistine Chapel. You know, one of my best friends, he's an agnostic atheist, and he visited me when I was doing my studies in Rome, and I told him the little secret of what you got to do. I don't know if it still works like this. If you're ever in Rome, there's a trick where you can get the Sistine Chapel by yourself. You get your ticket online. You get there right when the Vatican Museum's open. You don't look at anything else, and you beeline it straight for the Sistine Chapel, and you will be like the only one in there for a good 10, 15 minutes. And that happened to him. And here is this um, atheist agnostic uh, young man, good friend of mine. Um, and he said he got goosebumps being in there. It was beauty, right? Beauty is a transcendental that takes you out of yourself and lifts you up to God. That's why the Catholic Church says beauty is so important. Um, and out of all this incredible art that the church has produced, it says that music is its Greatest contribution to art, the artistic world. So music is very important to the church. Um, This past Sunday, there's the Roman Missal, the book. Another picture we got the photographer to take. I didn't know he was doing that, but he took a nice photo of the Roman Missal up in the sanctuary space. So this right here is the Roman Missal. This is the page. This is what Father Took and I are looking at in the Roman Missals. It's open right there on the little stand and on the altar. These are what's called the propers. These are the prayers proper to the Mass of the day. And if you look, so this is the collect, the opening prayer. This is the prayer over the offerings. This is the prayer after communion. And if you look up there, there's the entrance antiphon. That's in the book, the propers. What it said this past week is, Within your will, O Lord, all things are established, and there is none that can resist your will. For you have made all things, the heaven and the earth, and all that is held within the circle of heaven. You are the Lord of all. This is what the church really wants us to do at the beginning of Mass. As you can see this, 
I'm sorry there's a lot of feedback, so I'm going to plug this in, and then I'll plug it out, or unplug it. This was this past Sunday. That's where I stopped it, I guess. <laughs> so that's the uh, entrance antiphon that we did at Mass on Sunday. Um, again, that's the church's preference. And then you're seeing this. This is coming from Scripture. You can go back. Esther 4, 17, that's where the verse comes from. So it's coming from Scripture. One of the things we'll look at, sacred music, what the church's preference is, is that it actually comes from Scripture and comes from the liturgy itself, and it all flows so well together. I mean, one of the things that this can remind you of, does anyone remember what the gospel was this past weekend? It's about marriage, right? And it's about God. All things are established. Uh, God's will. And so it's already drawing you in um, to what we're going to be doing at Mass. Now, one of the things in the video... We'll ask a couple of things, right? What are some other things you saw in the video? Obviously, there's that. There's incense. What else did you see? This is just the entrance procession. What else did you observe that goes on that the priest does? Kissing of the altar, exactly. Now, kissing of the altar, a kiss is a sign of reverence. Now, as a side note, the, the head liturgist in seminary, he told us, this isn't a romance. You don't make the little sound, right? <laughs> I always say that, so you just touch your lips to the altar, right? As Americans, maybe we grew up watching too many movies growing up or something. Yeah, he said, uh, you just touch your lips. It's a sign of reverence. What else does the priest do that you saw? Uh, Genuflect. Genuflect, right? So what it says in the general instruction is a profound bow, or if the tabernacle 
is in the sanctuary. It's a genuflection towards the tabernacle. And there's only really, beside, there's that genuflection, there's the genuflections that happen at consecration, and then there's the genuflection at the end uh, when we process out, but that's it. Now, St. Thomas More is kind of interesting. I had to like actually look through this and think it out when I first got here. Based on the rules of the church, our tabernacle is technically in the sanctuary because it's in that space up there, right, with that floor. It's just off to the side. So you see us, technically when we walk in, we genuflect to the tabernacle and there's no bow because the tabernacle is in the sanctuary. I love these stupid little rules, by the way. Deacon John uh, probably uh, has had enough of me with that stuff. (laughs) Another thing too, right, is you saw, this is the only other thing with this, is the incense. Um, The purpose of incense. incense, incense is pretty interesting. In antiquity, this is years even before, I mean, the pagans used incense. Incense was a sign of uh, when they did sacred things to shoo away evil spirits. In the Old Testament, we see the use of incense. God instructed it uh, to have incense at the altar of sacrifice. And uh, when Moses would go enter the tabernacle, he was supposed to burn incense. Uh, It was also used at the temple regularly. And so it was no, you know, very easy to understand that the early Christians adopted this as well. Now, I'd say incense can serve three different things at least. One is the smell alone, right? Smell and memory are closely connected. And so when you smell incense, it actually recalls what you've done in the past, right? So when you're used to smelling incense throughout the years and years of liturgy, when you smell it, it just, your mind just goes back into that state that you're doing something sacred, set apart. Now, as a side note, yeah, there's some incense that smells pretty bad. I get that. Uh, we use really good incense here. Uh, it's from, this was a trivia question at the school. It's from Holy Transfiguration Monastery. It's Orthodox. The Orthodox, I like think Greek Orthodox, they love incense. So this is an Orthodox monastery outside of Boston we get it from. And what I'm probably going to do is change the scent when Advent starts. So you're getting used to this kind of sweet vanilla smell now. If, you're, if you go, right now it's just the, you know, I'll just, good news for some of y'all. We will not have incense at the 5 and the 7, it's 5 o'clock Saturday and the 7.30 uh, Sunday morning to allow people who le- have legit maybe reasons. Sometimes people get um, maybe like a headache or a migraine from it, and I get that. Um, now, some people just have an aversion towards incense. Uh, now, this is what the church calls for, though. It really does encourage us to use incense on more solemn occasions, and Sunday is no doubt a solemn occasion. There is a funny little meme, a joke, right, this online video uh, picture thing. When uh, COVID broke out and live stream masses were happening, there was a video, a picture of a priest incensing, and it was live stream. And one of the comments on the video was someone coughing somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> because people just cough if they see it. Now, this is kind of serious. I'm not accusing anyone of this. But one of my good friends, he was in town in April. Uh, he's a priest for the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., really bright, well-educated guy. And he was telling me about an exorcist he was talking to. The exorcist told him this aversion towards incense today, could it be a sign of the demonic? Now, I'm not saying any of y'all are demonic, right? But it is interesting. If it's this sacred act we do and there's an aversion, a hatred towards it, um, something to kind of think about, right? 
All right, so then we get to the next. So incense is done. Priest goes to the chair. There's me, one of these great pictures, right, from Mass. I'm telling you, if you look, clo- if you look more closely, there's more gray in that beard than that last one. Uh, now, one of the things we do is sing. Now, why do you think the priest sings? Take a guess. I'll shoot you down and say why you're wrong. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Rubrics? Yeah, well, the church does, uh, it's going back to Musicum Sacrum. So, okay, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document from 1963, and it called for, like, had addressed all this stuff about music. In 1967, the Catholic Church came out with a document. It's the Vatican II document after the council closed called Musicum Sacrum. And it is the governing document on sacred music. Now what this says is especially on Sundays and feast days, a form of song mass is to be preferred as much as possible, even several times on the same day. And then what it calls for is different degrees. So back in the day, before the Second Vatican Council, you had a mass that was fully sung, or you had a mass that was just said quietly, right? And that was what they'll say is, um, you know, a lot of times it was just a quiet spoken mass. So the people had all these devotionals, right? So what it, the, the council wanted was the active participation, the people kind of knowing more what's going on, but this dialogue between priest and people, especially in singing. And so it says that there are different degrees. Now, these different degrees of things that should be sung, it says the first may be used by itself, but the second and third degrees, wholly or partially, may never be used without the first. In this way, the faithful will be continually led towards an even greater participation in the singing. All right, this is really fascinating, because I promise you, you, will, you have experienced this done incorrectly at pretty much every church you've been to. Shocking, right? And I've actually discovered this more later as I've become a priest. The first degree... The thing, if you're going to sing, the thing that has to be sung. The entrance rites. The greeting of the priest together with the reply of the people. That is, you know, in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. That's first degree. So if you're going to see, have anything sung at Mass, it says that's it, right? And then the prayer, the collect, the opening prayer the priest is supposed to sing. The second thing. Liturgy of the Word, the acclamations at the Gospel. That's when the deacon, the Lord be with you. Um, A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. And the Eucharistic liturgy, the prayer over the offerings, the preface with its dialogue, and the sanctus. The final doxology of the canon, the Lord's prayer with its introduction and embolism, the Pax Domini, the prayer after communion, and dismissal. That's first degree. So you, if you sing anything, you have to sing those things before you sing anything else. So this is interesting. This is the second degree. The Kyrie, the Gloria, the Agnus Dei, the Creed, the Prayer of the Faithful. So those are supposed to be sung And then here's third degree. Here are the least important things to sing. The songs at the entrance and communion processions. How many times do you go to Mass and that's the only thing sung? Isn't that amazing? 
Like that, it, 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 otherwise, before the Second Vatican Council, it was either all sung or none sung. And then now, it's if you're going to sing, you have to do this, this, this. Uh, the songs after um, the lesson or the epistles, that's like the offertory chant, I guess. Uh, the Alleluia, I oh, know that, I think it's in there, the song at the offertory. The Alleluia before the gospel, right? So that's third degree. The readings of sacred scripture, unless it seems more suitable to proclaim them without singing. Um, so you could actually sing all the scriptures, right? One of the coolest, I went to Mass at St. Peter's Basilica, and the, uh, the gospel was chanted in Greek, Koine Greek, the original language, right, that the gospel was written in. I didn't know what was being said. I had my thing to read, but it sounded really cool. <laughs> um, all right, so guys, that's right there. I said I'd do 45 minutes. That's how long we got. Now, I will catch us up to speed, I promise you. It's important to see, though, going back to the custodians of tradition, right? So the things we're doing here, I'm really trying to follow Pope Francis's uh, kind of directive. And I really do think, like, if we do what the church wants us to do with the liturgy, we will enter into it more profoundly. I'm learning with you a lot of this, too. Like, I learned a lot in seminary. I saw a lot of the things that we did. But I'm still, it's a constant discovery. And I, I think in my own progression as a priest, I've grown more deeply to appreciate the liturgy. I mean, it's something different, right? It should be something set apart. We go in, and it's not like anything we kind of do out there. It has elements from things we do out there, but it's different. I had a friend who was here um, for Holy Thursday Mass uh, last year. Um, I guess technically it's this year, but you know what I mean. <laughs> And he, and he was with other, uh, other friends, and they, he was not Catholic. And he came in, hadn't really been to Mass, and they asked him, they said, so what would you think? He goes, I don't know. He said, that's just so different than anything I've been used to. Exactly, right? Uh, and so the councils opened it up, again, for our active participation, where we should try to enter in fully. These responses are crucial. That's what Pope Paul VI really wanted to. He was the Pope who kind of inherited the council after John the 23rd died. And so those responses going back and forth, and our church has gotten really good. Our singing, this interplay back and forth has been beautiful. Um, all right, so I'm going to leave it for some questions. What questions do you have for me? Yes? Yes. So it could be either way. I think the ideal would be maybe we'll get there to eventually is to have the people sing. Now it's there, but the musical notations are not there in the worship aid. Um, when I'm up there, you might see me kind of mouth it because um, I have it. And if you have it there too, it's there. Um, we're looking at that. Uh, you could listen to it and absorb it. That's still active listening, prayerful listening, you'd say. But I think we will look at getting into where everyone's singing as well, where the people sing the, ver- the antiphon, and then you might go into the verses, like we do the communion antiphon, and there'll be the antiphon, the thing that repeats, and then you have the verses that just the choir would sing. And so that's, that's getting up there to maybe the ideal is this back and forth. And that's what I did every day in seminary. That's what it was. We had a Benedictine monk um, who was the head of liturgy, uh, and by the way, you know the difference between a, uh, a liturgist and a terrorist? <laughs> you can negotiate with a terrorist, you know? Yeah. So liturgist, it's like the rule is there, follow the rule. And then it's priest, right? I mean, like, I really try and follow all the rules, but there are some things like, well, I just, 
I always try and follow the rules. Cardinal DiNardo, I promise you, I try and follow the rules. <laughs> Good question. Not really, no. No, we, I mean, you can do it. Obviously, it's the second degree. Uh, hopefully, we get there, right? Um, it actually has in the missile, I'll show you, and it, has, it gives us the musical notations for the creed, actually. So I'll show you what I'll go into this. I'm going to add it on this slide as well. So there it is right there. Here are the introductory rites. So when we're looking, the priest is looking at this. It has it just, in the, uh, you know, as you would say it, but it gives us the musical notations, so it's just implying there that it wants to be sung. And the missile itself has the creed with the musical notations as well. So that'd be really cool. I think we will. It might start off with just having the choir sing, but it's not too hard, right? And, and singing, in the, uh, anything with singing, it just is repetition, right? The more you sing it, the more you get it, right? But because we're so unused to it, and that's the thing. Like, I feel somewhat deprived growing up in all of this, it's like, why wasn't any of this followed, right? Why did I, as a kid growing up and all of this, because, you know, I'm a cradle Catholic, why wasn't any of this followed? I mean, it's clearly there. So it's almost, I mean, I don't think it was, some people it was intentional. Not anyone in here, not anyone we know, you know. Some was intentional. Some didn't think Second Vatican Council went far enough, and so they were saying, we're just going to take the spirit of the council. This is what it wanted to do and meant to do, and we're just going to take it to the extreme. And that's not it, right? Um, it was never supposed to be a rupture in tradition. Uh, it was supposed to be an update, right? And so you, could, you should be able to see what the Mass was and then how it is, and it should be at least like you can connect a lot of dots. Um, so I'm just... Like, that's how you kill things, though, right? Um, I mean, all these countries, like North Korea, probably, like propaganda, they can change history. Any of y'all ever read, um, um, what was the, uh, 1984, right? Yeah, and that's, and they control history. If you control history, you control the future. So if you're changing all this stuff, so none of us, like, these are here. Father Clark didn't make this up. Um, and it's there. And so it's just, it, it, it kind of boggles the mind. Why wasn't any of this followed for so long, right? And this is not me being a traditionalist, right? This is just going what the Second Vatican Council calls for. Yeah? So in the seminary, you sing Gregorian chant. Some, yeah. So Gregorian chant technically is Latin. And that's, by the way, Gregorian chant, uh, that's, I was kind of playing it earlier, is all things being equal, that is the sacred music of the Catholic Church. And then it's, anything should flow from that and resemble it some. So you can use vernacular in it, and it's not technically Gregorian chant, but it is chant tones. But yes, go ahead. Do you have a question? What I was getting at is why is that written in, you know, a basic, five, five lines, Oh, this is just the Roman Missal. So this is going to this is going to uh, model off of chant. It's a simp- it's a simpler way of doing it. But this is just the musical notations that's given in the Roman Missal. Um, I don't exactly know why it wouldn't be like written written in the Gregorian chant tones, but that's just kind of what's given to me in the Missal. Yeah, good. I mean, that's a good question though. And we'll talk more about music because the Church obviously focuses on how important it is. Well, is it true that one comes to church and misses the gospel, that means he has missed the mark. It's a good question. He goes, 
If, if you miss the gospel, did you miss mass? Do you fulfill your obligation? Can you receive communion, right? Now, when I was in seminary, this is the question, right? We were arguing about this amongst seminarians, and the rector comes in. Uh, he's the head of the seminary. He's now a bishop uh, in Texas, and he's, he's a pretty, pretty brilliant man. Uh, and he comes in and says, that's what the nuns told us. <laughs> There's nothing written anywhere that says you're not fulfilling your obligation or you can't receive communion. Now, that's up to you and your conscience if you're in the right state to do it. But if you get there, let's say you're legitimately impeded, like there's a wreck, right? Or Hillcroft, Brazewood traffic, and it's like, oh, I got there right at the gospel. Can I receive communion? There is nothing that says you cannot. Now, what it does say is you can receive communion twice a day. You can't receive more than that. Um, And it says the second time you receive communion, you have to participate or assist fully in the Mass, so let's say you receive communion, at, maybe it's a communion service, or someone was sick, or you got there, right, like at the gospel at one mass, so you can receive communion. If you wanted to receive again, you had to participate fully in the next mass, meaning be there the whole time, more or less. Good question, though. So yeah, if you get there a little bit late, you can still receive communion. If it's, now, if you're like, ah, I'm just going to show up at uh, you know, the Our Father, uh, maybe you shouldn't receive, you know? But here's the thing, too, is you don't have to receive every Mass, right? That's like kind of an American thing. Um, if you go to any, like, a lot of South American countries, a lot of European co- countries, maybe not Germany, but uh, Italy, you're, it's amazing how people, like, communion's done differently. There aren't the lines, right, row by row by row, pew by pew by pew. It's people just get up and go, and some people just stay sitting. And a lot of people, I mean, it was kind of shocking for me to see that at first, but you get it. It's people who are like, I'm not in the right state. Maybe I, I mean, back in the day, there was the midnight fast, right? So if you ate after midnight before Sunday Mass, you could not receive communion because there was a fast. You still had to go to Mass to fulfill your obligation. So even if you cannot receive communion, you still need to go to Mass. That fulfills your obligation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So even if you're like, ah, uh, yeah, you just need to get, you should go to Mass. Good question, though. Father, how about communion by intention? I thought you were going to give communion by intention last Sunday. Or I saw you, uh, I thought. Communion by intention? But I didn't have the chalice down last Sunday. Intention, by the way, is where you dip the host in the blood. Intention? Um, no, no, you would do that. Um, so b- before. I don't know. I can't say that. But uh, receiving from the chalice was really rare. It still is really rare around the world. It really is something you kind of see more and more just maybe in America. Obviously, we don't do it now with uh, COVID. But uh, even the, the rites themselves suggest that receiving from the chalice should be on special occasions. Because, again, we re- when we receive the host, we receive body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Right? So it's more of a fuller sign of the symbol to receive from the chalice. But the documents seem to, seem to suggest that receiving from the chalice should be special occasions, like a wedding couple, right, their marriage, uh, first communions, an ordination mass, have it available for the people to kind of... Sh- uh, so it's not something I don't think the church envisioned to have every mass, chalices, all the time. Um, so, yeah. But in Tinction, no, we haven't done that, I don't think, here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, whenever you receive a, a letter from the, from the Pope, mm-hmm. 
he tells you what we're going to do now. Yes. Uh, I can't imagine he's as busy as you. Does he? <laughs> does, does he have the uh, participation of the magisterium? Do they get together on a regular basis, daily, or? Yeah, he was asking, so Urban's asking about, does the, do they get together on a regular basis at the Vatican to discuss these things? You know, John Twenty-Third was asked, how many people work at the Vatican? And he said, about half of them. Uh, <laughs> um, so I actually, so living in Rome for five years, uh, I have friends that are still over in Rome, and one of my friends works for the Vatican Actually, two of them do. But one, they say when you, as soon as you go into a meeting in the Vatican, you can tell right away if it's a real meeting where something's going to get done or if it's just for the appearance of a meeting and say we did something. Now, the way the church works, it really is Italian, right? So you have to know Italian culture to understand how the church works. So you read all this stuff in the news about these scandals in Italy at the church, the Vatican. It's like, ah. That's kind of how Italy works, you know? Um, but yeah, the, they, they come together to discuss all this stuff. I mean, the Magisterium and the uh, Holy See has a bunch of different offices, uh, legislative texts, liturgical texts. There's, I'll talk more about the Congregation for Divine Worship, the CDW. They answer a lot of these questions. If there's ambiguities in the rites, people will write them, and then they will respond. And so they give... Um, kind of clarifying points on some stuff. So there's a lot that comes out of the Vatican. Now, this big stuff, this motu proprio that came out from Pope Francis, Cardinal DiNardo is the one who's supposed to implement it in the diocese. Um, and he actually came out recently and, uh, to talk about that, or gave out an instruction on how to interpret in our diocese that motu proprio, custodians of the tradition. So a couple more questions before we break until next time. Uh, we have a question. Sure. Um, I might have missed some information, but um, so churches have a choice on whether to do the old or the new mass? Not anymore, no. So that's a good question. He asked, do churches have the option anymore to do the new or the old mass? And no. So Cardinal DiNardo, so that's Pope Benedict in 07 and Samorum Pontificum gave every priest um, kind of the, the faculty, the power to do the extraordinary four mass, the mass that was from 1962 to 1960, 1562 to 1969, the Tridentine mass or the Council of Trent took place between 1545 and 1562, I think, maybe. I don't know, fact check that one. Uh, and then that produced, uh, it had an update on the mass to give us, and so that was around for about 400 years until the Second Vatican Council. Pope Benedict allowed every priest to say the Old Mass whenever he wanted, um, and then Pope Francis has restricted it more to give the power more to the bishop to say, so I can't, and now he said where those Masses can be done. So the extraordinary four Masses in Houston are done at Annunciation, which is downtown, that always had that. Um, and then it's done regularly at Regina Chaley, which is in northwest Houston, and then it's done twice a month at St. Bartholomew's in Katy, and twice a month at St. Teresa's in Sugarland. Not on Sundays, though, or Holy Days. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So here, and it's, we've never done, well, I don't think, I don't think, I've never done an extraordinary form mass here. It's just the ordinary form. And hopefully, I mean, that's where I like that document in the sense at the end where he said, just follow what the rubrics say and what the books say. So it's a chance for all of us to kind of rediscover what the church 
uh, wants us to do at Mass. It's pretty important, I think, you know? And then, uh, Pat, did you have a question? So those are just, so he's talking about the different vestments. So those are just actually uh, different styles of vestments. So that's a Roman chasuble, the old one that you see that's pretty stiff and straight down. We wear Gothic chasubles. Um, it's just different styles. Uh, yeah, so that's it. And, I, I, and in the church here, I think it'd be pr- like when you wear a Baroque. We're not, Baroque is the style of architecture, and uh, I don't, I'd be weird wearing Baroque uh, vestments in a modern church, you know? Yeah. So that's a good question, though. So that's just, I could if I wanted to. It's still a, a legit vestment. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. And that'd be, I guess, a priest preference thing. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. That's it. Eight o'clock, huh? So uh, if you have any questions, too, email me. I'll talk about them next time and bring them up. Again, and here's the thing, too, I'll say. If I'm wrong on anything, I promise you I will change, and I st- I'll say I stand corrected. This happened last year. Might have been, might have been you, uh, the choir. So when you receive communion, it said the general instruction of the Roman Missal. I thought it's seminary was even told. It, start, I mean, it would always start after the priest consumed the chalice, but it says when the priest consumes. And so someone in the choir had brought that up to me to begin the communion chant when the priest consumes, and sure enough, it was in the general instruction, the Roman Missal right there, and I said, yep, you're right, go ahead and do it. Yeah, so, I mean, there are probably little things that I'm not doing correctly, and it's a chance for me to, to go back into it. Again, I think we all have a right to the right. The church is the vision of the church. I'm like the police officer. I'm not the politician, right? I just kind of go by the law, enforce the law. Uh, I don't make up the law. Yeah. Again, I think the church... That's the divine institution. They have the vi- it has the vision for how we should be celebrating Mass. So that's what we'll try and do. Last question, Gloria. Oh, um, that's what we were told when we were cantering to wait for the priest to consume. Yeah, and then it was brought to my attention. The general instruction of the Roman Missal says when the priest, uh, you know, as soon as he consumes. Not necessarily. It was co- I grew up in the 40s and 50s, and that's all we did was Latin. Yeah, so that was, it's more called the Tridentine Mass. It's, it's kind of not right to say Latin, not like, because I have a, a missal, the Novus Ordo is what it's called, the New Rite. Uh, it's like this, but it's all Latin. I could, I'm not, but I could do the whole Mass in Latin. So it's not Latin that's restricted, it was the form of the Mass that was restricted. Um, but yeah, but the vernacular should be used, right? Like we should be hearing the gospel. I mean, in our native tongue. I think that's ideal, right? I should be preaching. There was a funny story I heard where um, uh, people were asking the priest, old priest, to, you know, say Mass in Latin, say Mass in Latin. So he did the whole Mass in Latin, including the homily. (laughs) No no one ever asked him to do it again in Latin. (laughs) Well, let's close with a prayer, okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Amen. And the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you all for being here.